kids uh, kindergarten through fifth grade, you can make your way to the back of the sanctuary where your teachers are waiting for you. And one more announcement type thing before I begin. I, as Caleb said, I'm John, John Baumgartner. Uh, I've been Pastor Caleb's intern for the past year. Um, I'm originally from Litchville, not too far southeast of here. Uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the back. Or, uh, and if you, if you need a new Bible, there's some paperback Bibles at the back table, and we would like you to have that um, as your new Bible. Let us read God's Word in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. So the core value we are looking at today in our series of core values is authentic in fellowship. And you can find it, as well as all of our core values, on the Buffalo City Church website. Uh, and it will also be up on the slide behind me as I read it now. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit set the precedent for the fellowship we strive for as a community of faith. The triune God is three distinct persons, but possess one unequivocally unified nature. We both recognize that those who comprise the local church are created in the image of God and therefore seek to reflect the divine unity of the Godhead and also inhabit sinful flesh and must rely wholly on the Spirit of Christ to unite. As God's people, we are commanded to cultivate unity, which requires a thorough investment in the lives of our Christian brothers and sisters, as well as the life of the local church. As the body of Christ, we rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, and spur on to greater godliness and holy living. Messages like uh, follow your heart, let your conscience be your guide, and even let it go have defined for us what it means to be authentic. We hear people telling us to live our authentic self, be our authentic self. And so before we look at 1 John to tell us about fellowship, we need to get clear on what we mean when we say authentic. Because to the world, authentic means something very different from what we mean when we use it in our core value. And if we're not careful, the world's definition of authentic will simply slip right in and redefine for us what we mean when we say authentic in fellowship. So let me quote from the most well-known spokesperson for being your authentic self. 
to give you a better understanding of the world's definition of authenticity. And of course, I am referring to none other than the Snow Queen Elsa herself. Here's a lyric from her anthem of authenticity, Let It Go. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Charles Taylor, who Caleb has quoted and are alluded to several times in different sermons before now, is a Christian philosopher. He is a C.S. Lewis kind of figure. And he is titled The Era in Which We're Living, The Age of Authenticity. And he describes it like this. I mean the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity, and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with the model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. Now that was a mouthful. I had to concentrate to just say that, so it's let alone hard to understand it. But you see, being your authentic self in this age of authenticity means you throw off all the expectations that society has for you. People can't tell you who you are. The government can't tell you who you are. Your parents can't tell you who you really are. The church can't tell you who you really are. God can't tell you who you really are. The age of authenticity says, only I can figure out who I am, and I can't commit the sin of letting outside forces tell me who I am and how I should live. This is not what we mean at Buffalo City Church when we say authentic. This is not what we mean. When we say authentic, we mean true, genuine, matching the original. It's like when you buy an authentic part to a car. It means that that part is going to fit the mold that the old part that you're taking out, the one that you're replacing, it fits the mold. It's not a part that living, that's living its dreams. It's a part that fits. When we say authentic fellowship, we do mean that we want our fellowship to be true and genuine. But even more important than that, we want our fellowship to match the original that it's patterned after. There's a term in theology, imago dei, and it literally means the image of God. So when we look for authenticity, we don't look into ourselves, into our hearts, which the scriptures in Jeremiah 17.9 says is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So if you want to live your authentic self, that's, that's what you're going to get. Rather than looking into ourselves, we fling ourselves back and we look back to the day that God created us and see what he has to say. Genesis 1.27 tells us, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We were made in God's image. And Jesus Christ is God's image. 
Colossians 1.15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. Kings and popes and other important people wore signet rings, and I do too, but that's just because I'm a hipster. <laughs> it's a ring that they would use to sign authority when, when you stamp something with it. So a king would write a letter, and to prove that he wrote it, he would take off his ring, he would pour a little hot wax onto the letter, and he would stamp it. And as the wax cooled, the stamp would harden, and it would prove that the king wrote it. If you had the ring, you had the king's authority. And if the seal was authentic, it matched the ring, because the ring made it. Jesus Christ is God's signet ring. When God made humanity, he stamped us with his image. We were made in God's image. Jesus Christ is God's image. Like a wax seal matches the stamp that imprinted it, or like a brand on a cow matches the hot iron that formed it, or a snow angel, which some of the children can go out and do today, uh, match the outline of the person that lays down in the snow and makes it. And like a child matches the family when we say, oh, she has your eyes, or he comes by it honestly. When we reflect Jesus Christ, when we show that we were made in his image, that is what it means to be authentic. True authenticity is reflecting Jesus Christ and showing that we were made in his image. Okay, so big introduction out of the way, just to deal with Disney authenticity and everything else so that we know what we're talking about when we say authentic. Let's spend the rest of our time in 1 John. And the one main thing I want you to hear and to understand and to believe from me is this. The book of 1 John is a directory for fellowship. So what do I mean by that? Well, do you want to know what, first, what fellowship is? Go to 1 John. Do you want to know how to have fellowship? Go to 1 John. Do you want to know what the basis for fellowship is? Go to 1 John. Do you want to know how to repair broken fellowship? Go to 1 John. All this and more in 1 John. So I'm not going to go into detail about all of these things. That would require a series of sermons just to address all the issues concerning fellowship in 1 John, and I've got one. And God willing, someday I will preach a series of sermons on 1 John wherever he calls me. But right now, I can't deal with all of it, so I'm telling you, for fellowship, for all the nitty-gritties, go to 1 John. Well, let's take a few minutes so that I can convince you that 1 John is actually a letter concerning fellowship. That's just, don't just assume that, oh, I'm telling you it's, it's about fellowship, so we're good. Okay, let's be convinced. So let's first think about the occasion of the letter. And the question of occasion is simply asking, why did John write this letter? If a coworker brought in cupcakes or something to share with everybody and you said, what's the occasion? Well, you're asking, you know, is it your birthday or, or whatever? So for John, what's the occasion? Well, there's an external and an internal reason. Externally, there are problems coming from outside the church 
and they're having an effect inside the church. There's persecution, there's false teaching, there's apostasy when someone who once claimed to be a Christian falls away and denies the faith. All of these issues are encroaching on the church that John is writing to. So externally, there are problems plaguing the church. But internally, John is motivated by his desire for fellowship with his readers. Look again at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The two words, so that, translate a little Greek word, hina, uh, and it's just often translated as so that, or in order that, or for the purpose of. If somebody said, I'm doing this so that, that's why they're doing it. So John is telling his readers the purpose of this letter. Why did he proclaim it? It's fellowship. Fellowship among believers and with God himself. So John sees that there are external problems facing the church, but the real issue isn't any one of these problems. The real issue is that fellowship is being hindered by these problems. And John doesn't just want to solve these issues. He wants fellowship. Because he has fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now just a little bit, step aside just a moment. John's writings in the New Testament can be difficult to understand, not only because he deals with deep theology, which sometimes he does, uh, but more often than not, they're hard to understand and hard to translate because he uses words that have double meanings or he will just string phrases together without ever having a subject. Um, which, you know, an English teacher might call in a run-on sentence or a fragment or all sorts of issues that just you can get away with if you're John writing in Greek, but when you try to actually read it and understand it, it gets difficult. So before moving on, I just want to offer a restatement of these three verses uh, from a commentary that I was using that I found to be helpful. Okay. With this letter, we report to you, too, what we have seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We report what was from the beginning, something we heard and saw with our eyes, something we beheld and our hands felt concerning the word that bestows life. This life was revealed, and we have seen and testify and report to you the eternal life that was with the Father and revealed to us. Now remember, this is John the Apostle, John the beloved disciple, who was with Jesus. So when he's talking about what we saw, what we touched, what we heard, he's talking about Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel that Jesus preached and accomplished. And again, I cannot stress enough how I'm not even scratching the surface of what's in 1 John, but I've got to contain myself to one sermon. So I'm going to draw out one more thing from this letter. And then everything else, you'll just have to go there yourself, right? 
And that thing, which comes from the verses we've just been looking at, is the basis for fellowship. It's the foundation. So the question is, how do we have fellowship? How do you have fellowship with the person that's seven pews behind you? Or even more so, how do you have fellowship with the Christian believer from the seventh century that lived in a country that has been gone for a thousand years and spoke a language that no longer exists? We have fellowship in Christ. So for John, fellowship is on the basis of a proclamation. The answer is in verse 3. You see that. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. He wants to have fellowship with his hearers, so what does he do? He proclaims Jesus to them. He doesn't come to them and say, oh, look, our kids are in the same class. Or, oh, look, we're in the same economic social status. Or, oh, look, you know, we should really band together and form a coalition and throw off these Romans because they're a real problem. He doesn't even say something like, let's pool our resources together as Christians so that we can better help the poor and build a hospital. Or, let's pool our resources together so we can make a mission society. That's, that's not how he begins fellowship. That's not what he bases it on. He bases the fellowship wholly and totally upon the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So now for application of that. And I have three points for you. Caleb told me earlier when I said three points, they said that's the most Baptist thing you've ever done is to give three points. There are this. Be Trinitarian. Proclaim Jesus for fellowship. And hear Jesus proclaimed. The first one, be Trinitarian. John is Trinitarian. And this letter of 1 John is totally and unashamedly Trinitarian. The Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity permeates the whole letter. And I think most Christians look at the Trinity as sort of this theoretical concept up here that you don't really need to worry about. It's hard to understand, so just don't think about it. Your life will be better. But it's the most important doctrine for John. And it certainly was the most important doctrine for Jesus, who knew himself to be God the Son and who prayed to his Father. So just as a help for us to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, I'm going to read part of the Athanasian Creed, which is a really early statement of faith from the first 300 years of the church. It goes so far back in history that even Roman Catholics and Southern Baptists agree on it. Okay. Now you might stop me and say, hey, wait, I thought we were doing application. You're supposed to tell me something to do now. Well, all right. Do this for the next two minutes or three minutes or however long it takes me to read this. Just sit there, listen carefully. The Athanasian Creed. Whosoever will be saved, before all things it is necessary that he holds the Catholic faith, which faith, except everyone do keep whole and undefiled, 
Without doubt, he shall perish everlastingly. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. For there is one person of the Father, another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, and the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Holy Spirit incomprehensible. The Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. And yet they are not three eternals, but one eternal. As also they are not three uncreated, nor three incomprehensible, but one uncreated and one incomprehensible. So likewise the Father is almighty, the Son almighty, and the Holy Spirit almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but one almighty. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. So likewise the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit Lord. And yet they are not three lords, but one Lord. For like as we are compelled by the Christian verity to acknowledge every person by himself to be God and Lord. So we are forbidden by the Catholic religion to say there are three gods or three lords. The Father is made of none, neither created nor begotten. The Son is of the Father alone, not made nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created, nor begotten, but proceeding. So there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And in this Trinity, none is afore or after another. None is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-equal and co-eternal. So that in all things, as aforesaid, the unity in Trinity and the Trinity in unity is to be worshipped. He, therefore, that will be saved must thus think of the Trinity. Second, proclaim Jesus for fellowship. You have more in common with the people gathered here in Jesus' name than you do with any other group you could be a part of. You have more in common with the unknown Christian woman from the Andes Mountains who spent her days in poverty and whose name is lost to history. And I'm telling you, you have more in common with every unknown and forgotten believer than you would have in common with your own parents or children if they weren't in the faith. 
there is greater commonality in Christ than even in family alone. Think about it. You are related by blood to your family. That is true. Their blood flows in you. And that is the way that God has has destined all of us to appear in the world is through family. You're related by blood, but there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. There is blood that unites us. So the person in this congregation that you think to yourself, wow, when when this is all over, I really hope that I don't run into them after church. Because, you know, we just have nothing to talk about. They're so much older than me, or they're so much younger than me, or they didn't grow up here so they don't understand how North Dakota works, or these people don't understand what it's like to be in the minority, or they hold a different political view than me. My goodness, do you have Jesus Christ? Do they have Jesus Christ? Are you both on the narrow way, denying yourselves, taking up your cross and following him? If that's the case, then the only real difference between you two is that old authentic self that you are both trying to kill. That sin in your life. You might sin in different ways. There's blood that unites us. Are you in conflict with anyone here this morning? Let me ask you, do you have more in common or difference with them? You might try to make an excuse for this, saying something like, have you heard her views on homeschooling? Or do you know what candidate that he voted for? Or you wouldn't believe what their kids said to my kids. But let me ask you, What do you have in common with this person? Is there blood that unites you? You're going to spend forever with them in the glorious company of the saints, praising God. Look around you. Heaven is filled with sinners such as we are here who have been made saints in Jesus Christ. Finally, for those of you who are sitting here in the pew and don't think that this fellowship is for you, hear Jesus proclaimed to you. If you're sitting there thinking, you wouldn't offer me fellowship if you knew what I have done or who I was. I'm just an imposter sitting here. I don't really know why I'm here even. Maybe you think you've sinned too many times, too many ways. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't just sweep our sins under the rug. He's faithful and just. They're not just hidden. We sang earlier, they're thrown in an ocean without bottom or shore. Gone. Or maybe you're thinking, that's all good for you, John. You've got faith. You believe. 
All I have is this unbelief. I just can't work up faith in myself. I just can't work it up. I want to believe, but I just can't. It just doesn't click for me. It doesn't work. 1 John 3.8 The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This unbelief that is holding you, keeping you from trusting Jesus, is the work of the devil. And Jesus came to undo it. So my solace and command to you for your good is to stop looking in at yourself. Your heart is deceitful and desperately sick. You know that already if this is your predicament. You won't find help in yourself. Instead, hold this promise before your eyes. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There is blood shed for you, yes, even you. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, and there may you, though vile as he, wash all your sins away. And you can sing, ever since by faith I saw that stream, thou flowing wounds supplied. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be. Till I die. There is blood shed for you. That hymn goes on Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power until the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. I'm not done proclaiming Jesus to you. Give me just a couple more minutes. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Caleb was talking about Genesis 20. Um, What's the message of it? You know, Abraham goes to sacrifice Isaac, and he kind of jokingly said, oh, yeah, well, I think the message is, you know, we should go camping with our boys more, or I think the message should be, you know, um, as how not to do it, right? At the end of that passage, it says, and so from that day onward, it is said, or you know, another way of translating, it's, this is why we have this saying, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Abraham goes, God tells him, sacrifice Isaac, your son whom you love, your only son. And just as Abraham is about to do it, God says, no, wait, Abraham, I've seen your faith. This was a test. There's a ram in the bushes over here. Take that and sacrifice that. On the mount of the Lord it will be provided. About 400 years later, the children of Israel are in Egypt and they're under slavery, oppressed by Pharaoh and The Lord sends Moses to them, and there are nine plagues that go upon Egypt, and still Pharaoh will not let my people go. And God, in order to save his children, kills the children of the Egyptians. God, in order to save his people, harms his enemies. 
But what a thing is it. That shows the power of the Lord, yes. But what a thing is it that shows the mercy of the Lord that God, in order to save his enemies, kills his son, his son, his only son, whom he loves. There is great power shown in the Exodus and great glory. But the mercy of God is shown when for his enemies, the blood that gets smeared over his enemies in order to save them from the wrath of God is his own son's blood. There's blood that unites us. That's how we have authentic fellowship. There's blood that unites us. And that's, that's really it. That's the, other, that's the other bit. That's really it. That's what unites us. There isn't more. Now, in Jesus Christ, there are treasures forevermore, and there are beautiful things, and there's all of this stuff that blooms out of, out of the message of the gospel. But if we try and add something that the blood of Jesus unites us and also this, we've watered down the blood. And we must not do that. Let's pray.